Okay, let's begin here. Everybody's in the back today. It's just about, so back row Baptists are coming in. Let's pray. I have a book giveaway here, MacArthur's Quick Reference Guide to the Bible. So get your thinking cap on, wake up. Hopefully you've had your coffee. Let's open in prayer. Lord, it is a good day. It's always a good day to be with the church. It's a good day to come and learn this morning. We pray for the classes that are meeting here. Pray that the Bible would be taught and learned by the children. We pray that the adults would be equipped, equipped to grow in the faith, equipped to evangelize, equipped to glorify you. I pray that we would find great joy in being with our brethren in the church and learn much this morning that would honor your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so we've been talking about Jonathan Edwards. We started this last week and got quite a bit of his life and ministry. They were saying that it was too emotional. His preaching caused emotion. And he wrote a book that answered those objections. He wrote a book we're going to talk about today that deals with the sovereignty of God, freedom of the will. So here's Edwards. He's preaching. I think that's his wife, Sarah. We looked last week at what is happening here with the American colonies. They had become very deadened as the Puritans brought a, a pure gospel over and they, they taught theology and reformed theology and sovereignty of God and man's responsibility to respond to the gospel. That had been watered down, as it often is, over the generations. And so the colonies were primed, you could say, providentially, for a movement of Christ and the Spirit. And suddenly, Whitfield is coming over from England and preaching to large crowds, and Edward starts preaching very sternly about going to hell and sinners in the hands of an angry God. And he does this in multiple churches, and they ask him to come back and, and preach at Yale. And all of these people are responding with great emotion, and they're having experiences, yes, but they're also being converted. That's most important. They're having a true belief in Christ for, for salvation. Before, they rested in their their baptism as babies, or they rested in their membership as the, when they got baptized as a baby, they were a member of the church, and this became an issue. And Edwards is very fiery in his words, not necessarily his actions. Not every preacher has to dance around and do all of this sweating and stuff. He probably did sweat since they didn't have air conditioners in the summer, but he is reading from a manuscript, but it's the words and the way he reads it and the way he preaches. And so we were looking at his ministry there and how it did take place during this first great awakening in America. And he is, his place of being a pastor, where his grandfather once was and he took over, is the ministry in Northampton. And in the mid-1740s, he was impressed with the ministry of David Brainerd. He heard about this missionary named David Brainerd who lived with the Edwards family for several months after he got to know him better. He was really impressed Edwards was with David Brainerd. Brainerd went to be a missionary to the American Indians that were wouldn't have been very far for him to travel. And uh, he tried to preach to them in their own tongue and had many converts, of course. And Brainerd died in 1747. I think it was tuberculosis. And so Edwards decided to publish a biography on him, and it was a major success. Many people bought this biography. And again, Brainerd, Calvinists, there was no issue with being a Calvinist and taking out the gospel to the lost. You're going to see when we get to the modern missionary movement, probably next week or the next, that all of the missionaries of the 1700s that started taking the gospel worldwide were Calvinistic in their salvation beliefs and their soteriology. 
1748, Edwards came into conflict with his church. And this was over the halfway covenant, which essentially allowed anyone to participate in the Lord's table as long as they had been baptized. So we recall that his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, his grandfather on his mother's side, had instituted this covenant because the grandchildren of the Puritans that came across the pilgrims, the grandchildren were not saved. They lived like pagans, but they came to church. They were officially members because they'd been born into the church. They had been baptized as infants. And there was a lot of tension. You had the true believers, and then you had the fake believers. And there was all this tension. Do we let them take the Lord's Supper? They're even admitting that they don't follow the Bible on these things. And so what Stoddard said was, well, you can become a halfway covenant member. Not a full covenant member, but a halfway. As long as you agree to what the church says is the truth of the gospel, the basic statement of faith, as long as you don't go against anything that the church says is orderly, then you can participate in the Lord's Supper. Well, Edwards wasn't going to have that. He said that's not scriptural, that's not biblical, and he was not letting those unbelievers take the Lord's Supper. And so this became a major conflict in his church. As you can imagine, somebody their whole life has been told it's okay to take the Lord's Supper and they can be blessed by doing it, and suddenly Edwards is convicted that they shouldn't do that anymore. Uh, here's David Brainerd painting of him sitting in what I think is a, an Indian lodge here, a Native American lodge. I forget the tribe exactly that he went to, but <clears throat> here's a, a drawing of him uh, preaching out. There's teepees. You can see the natives listening. These were not the plains Native Americans that would scalp you. These were much more sedentary. They, they didn't move around like the plains Indians and less warlike at this time. He was voted out of his church because of this conflict. It was congregational in that sense. There was only him as an elder, and the congregation got together. 200 people voted against him out of 223. So he was kicked out. The greatest theologian and philosopher that America has known, and one of the greatest preachers in America, voted out by his own church by a large majority because he would not let unbelievers take the Lord's Supper. So he goes to Stockbridge, Massachusetts, where the Housatonic Indians are, and he wants to follow in the path that David Brainerd set of being a missionary to the Indians. And this is a time where, yes, he's serving as a missionary, he's preaching, he's starting church, a church there, but he's also writing. So in God's providence, the Lord set him aside on the frontiers and let him spend more time thinking and writing, and he published quite a bit of his books. We now have, I think there's 22 or 24 volumes published by Yale of all of his works. In 1754, he published his well-known, probably the most famous scholarly work, The Freedom of the Will. In 57, he accepted the call to become a Princeton University president. Princeton was just getting started. He never got to become fully their president. He died of a smallpox inoculation. They didn't have vaccinations with shots back then, but they would scrape your skin, make a little bleed, and then stick some smallpox on there. And then you would, the idea was you'd get a little sick and then get over it, as opposed to catching it the normal way. Unfortunately, a lot of people still died from that way as well. So seven years, he's a missionary. Then he gets called to Princeton, a new, a new training center for pastors. Harvard was the first one in America. It goes liberal. So they start Yale. That's where Jonathan Edwards was trained. It goes, it's starting to become progressive by this point. So now Princeton is started. 
And we know what happens to Princeton in the early 19, late 1800s, early 1900s. Same path as well. They go progressive, liberal. So there he is in his house. I think that's Stockbridge. He wasn't completely out there. I mean, it was a town and surrounded by it were these Indian tribes to the west. And I, I think this is the, the original restored house that he lived in there. So maybe if you guys are in Stockbridge, Maine, for your honeymoon, you can go check it out. Oh, Massachusetts, sorry, Massachusetts, yeah. You may not want to go that, that far. Freedom of the Will. Let's look at this book. You really should consider reading it, especially if you want to learn more about what does it mean that we have a free will, but it's still bound by sin and, and God is sovereign over all of that. It is a not an easy work because it's older writing, but it's very helpful if you just take a little bit of each day and, and read it. Here's the introduction to the newest edition by Yale, listed as one of the 500 most important books in American history. So that's by a secular institution. Here's the full title. A careful and strict inquiry into the modern prevailing notions of that freedom of the will, which is supposed to be essential to moral agency, virtue and vice, reward and punishment, praise and blame. We just call it freedom of the will for short because we cannot stand long titles, long sentences. But that is a good Puritan title there. It tells you exactly what the book is about if you're in the bookstore and you open it up to the front page you get to see an advertisement basically right there. In this monumental work, Edwards is at pains to combat the prevailing notions, advanced primarily by Arminians of his day, that the will is self-determined in the sense that our choices are not predetermined by any other cause but the exercise of will itself. So the Arminian theology is coming to America at this time, and the Arminians are saying, now we determine ultimately our will is determined by us. God has no say in that. And he is arguing against that view. He says, but the, the intro says, but the exercise of will itself or our exercise from the state of indifference. For Edwards, this was nonsensical and dangerous because it denied the sovereignty of God as first cause. So to say that man has ultimate free will, ultimate free will means that there's no outside force acting upon our will at all. That's a problem because the only being that has true ultimate free will is God. That's it. And we can't make ourselves God by saying we have ultimate free will. So he addresses all of that in the book. Continuing with the introduction, famously, Edwards reduced such a view of the will to an absurdity by using the infinite regress argument. Causes of a supposedly indifferent choice were actually linked, as in a chain stretching back infinitely. So we, we've done this, if you've talked to maybe an atheist or an unbeliever before, right? Well, what made you think that? And where did you get that? Oh, you, that came from your evolution book. Well, who wrote the evolution book? Man. Where'd they get that knowledge from? Darwin. Where'd Darwin get it? From his own mind. So where do you get back to? Man. And ultimately, you have to go back to the word as your ultimate, your ultimate foundation, your presupposition. So in its place, Edwards offered a compatibilist, compatibilist view of the will and moral agency based on inclination that attempted to reconcile freedom and necessity. So there is a way to reconcile this. Not perfect in our minds. We want to know all the details. You don't get all the details. God gives us enough that we can put it together generally, and we have to believe that. A person acted according to predisposition, either towards sin, if un unregenerate, or holiness, if regenerate. 
So you do have a freedom of the will, but it is bound by something. And for the unbeliever, the sin, sin nature binds that, and you can't go beyond that and do something holy towards God for his glory. That's Romans 1 right there. And then if you are saved, if you are regenerate, you have the freedom now to do something for the glory of God, something truly holy, because God has enabled us to do so. Choice was a matter of strongest motives. So, yes, you did what you wanted to do, but that was something that you desired because of your nature, and you were motivated by your nature. Humans have a moral inability, that's in Scripture, to resist their strongest motives. According to one's spiritual state, then, there was a necessity to choices and actions that at the same time did not violate freedom and liberty to make those choices perform those actions. So if you didn't get all that, basically what he's saying is people choose of their own volition, of their own will to do something, but they're bound by their desires and their nature. So if you're a sinner, what do you want to do? You want to sin. Even doing something good ultimately serves you, good according to society. Now, if you're a Christian, you can drop back into sin, but you have the freedom now to obey God. You have the freedom now to follow him, like the scripture says, and do his will. So Edwards is saying, we do have a freedom of the will, but it's not an ultimate, absolute freedom like God has. God has ultimate freedom. So when we talk about free will, that's where we should focus. And a man has a will that's bound, that's fenced in. So here is Northwest Prospect. So this is his house here, and that's the school that they've just built in the background. When Edwards died, his wife wrote something very touching. She wrote to maybe all the children, but I think this letter went to one of the daughters. So remember, Edwards had 13 children. She writes to the daughter, Oh, my very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod of reproof and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him so long, talking about her husband. But my God lives, and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God. There I am and love to be. So what we have here is a letter that's written, and look at the theology. I mean, this is not a woman complaining. Yes, I'm sure she's grieving, but she knows that God has done it. God has given her this man. God has uh, raised him up to be a great preacher and theologian. And also God has taken him away in his own timing. His grave is not the one pictured in the front here. That's Aaron Burr, recently made famous by the Hamilton play. So everybody goes to see it now. But right behind there, to our, our lower left there, you can see a little plaque. That's Jonathan Edwards' tomb. And Aaron Burr married Jonathan Edwards' daughter. So he was the son-in-law, even though he was killed after, after Edwards died. So if you're ever in, the, I think it's the Princeton Cemetery, you can go in, in New Jersey and see his grave. There's a, a later painting of him. They did wear wigs. That was the style. That was the thing to do those days. They had these nice Puritan collars still, and the pastors anyway. And then, I don't know if he was wearing lipstick, but it certainly looks like they were powdering and putting some makeup on the men for at least paintings back then. I thought they wore that every day. John Piper found a lot of good from Edwards' ministry. He was motivated 
based on Jonathan Edwards to start his Desiring God ministry and, and preach about the glory of God. So here's what Piper says about Edwards' legacy. My own judgment is that from generation to generation, giants like Edwards are needed to inspire us to think about our faith and to guard us from settling superficially on small ideas about a small God. We need Edwards to waken us from our pragmatic stupor of indifference to doctrine and worship and prayer and evangelism and missions and church planting and social action. We need Edwards to show us again the beauty and the power of truth. Edwards does this so well because he is relentlessly God-besotted. That's a favorite Piper saying, God-besotted and God-exalted. He helps us to recover truth because he never loses sight of the unspeakable reality of God where truth originates and whom it exists to serve. So it's hard for us to, to read Edwards and see that, but he wasn't just this great theologian. He was a great preacher. Because of that theology, he loved the Lord with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and he preached it. And yes, people often looked at him like a, a strange person. Even his own family struggled with the fact that he was in his office, you know, 13 hours a day, 14 hours a day, and he might get out to walk around or eat a meal. But he was fully committed to his ministry of preaching and writing and ministering to the church. Here's some books that I would recommend. His Affections I've already mentioned. There's Freedom of the Will, a little bit more challenging, but still very much readable. A smaller one that's just been printed is, or reprinted, is Standing in Grace, a very small book. We just picked up a few of these because they came out by Reformation Heritage or Sola Dea Gloria publisher. And if you want a kid's book, which is really an older kid's book, which means adults can read this and not feel bad about it, uh, Simonetta Carr writes these great little biographies with lots of pictures or paintings. And here's one of Jonathan Edwards that I would recommend. And you have him as a young man or young boy looking at the spider. Remember last week we looked at the letter where he drew how the spider builds the web and he sends that to the society in London for publication. So he was a, a polymath. He studied all subjects and he was very well versed in all things. Uh, but anyway, that's a little biography for young readers, but some of us need to start there before we advance. That's how you do it. If, if you can't read freedom of the will, then you do religious affections. If you can't do that, then you read Standing in Grace. We should be familiar with the beginning and, and go for it. America's greatest philosopher and theologian. We should be familiar with what he said. And if you just want a short biography on him, there, there are some good biographies out there. The best one is by Ian Murray, and it's out of print. It's really hard to get unless you pay an arm and a leg for a used copy. But if you want a short one, David Brainerd here, which we'll talk a little bit about Edwards, but it's really more about David Brainerd's ministry. And of course, Edwards publishing the biography helped record Brainerd's life. You can get A Flame for God by Vance Christie. And I don't think I have it here. There's also a short one by Steve Lawson on the preaching of Jonathan Edwards. You know, the little small series, Long Line of Godly Men, He's got all these books, Lawson does. There's one on Edwards that would be a good place to start. He let his wife run the farm. All these, all these. we're not going into much on their personal life, but from, from pretty much Luther on, when it was okay to get married again as a pastor, they would either have somebody manage the house, because it was a large house, and normally they had a farm. Back then you had a cow and you had chickens and you had all these things. And so his wife, she was over all of that. And then he focused on ministry and of course, he had lots of children. And they also did buy a, a young slave. And that's where a lot of, I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, 
a lot of people have issue with Edwards and the Puritans. And and I, I have my thoughts on that. I, I think he was probably going along with the culture at the time. And I also think, you know, what what would we do if we're walking by a slave market? Here's this young girl that's standing up there and she could be purchased by anybody, anybody in that culture. And I, I think supposedly Edwards had an idea to let her free, but he died before that happened. But he only he only had, I think, her as a servant help. But lots of kids put them to work and get out and milk the cow and get the eggs and take care of the chickens. And That's not to say that his wife probably always enjoyed that. There is a book out there, which it's it's more of a secular view, but it's called Married to a Difficult Man. And it's about Sarah Edwards and Jonathan Edwards. John Piper does mention it, but I can't say everything in it would be biblically based. But if you wanted to see more of how the household ran, you could check that out. They still, he still would have met with people throughout the week, just maybe not as much as a man like Richard Baxter who spent every afternoon out. So different pastors have different, you know, philosophy of ministry and the way they practice it. But as far as we know, the church was very healthy there. Most of the church planting would have been done as the frontier moved west and a pastor would be trained and sent out. So he'd be trained at these schools until they went liberal. They would start a new school. He would be trained and, and sent west and a new village or town developed and that's they would have, you know, first congregational church or or Baptist church or Presbyterian church. And so it, it progressed like that, but not so much multiple churches in one town because they weren't very big at the time. And you didn't have much of a choice. I mean, you were you were in Northampton. You went to his church or maybe the Presbyterian church if there was one. Yeah, but how did he spend time? You know, that's that's that'd be good to get Ian Murray's biography if you want to pay all the used price out there. You know, people who sell books, use books on Amazon and stuff, they realize these are out of print. And they'll just $500 for, you know, a great condition book. So, yeah, that's a good question. But there, it was also a different age. He didn't have as many distractions. He didn't have cell phone, internet, TV, no radio, nothing. You read books, you wrote, and you had people to your home. I'm sure you did that a lot. And they went and visited people in their home. And what of the truth? Well, in the local church, first of all, local church really has the burden to carry the truth from generation to generation. But we're still struggling, aren't we, with that today? You see seminaries going woke, liberal, and then a new one starts. Or occasionally, they, you know, there's a resurgence back in the right direction for a time. But that's, that's always a tendency. As a place gets going, the next generation or two often waters it down. And that's a struggle, with, especially with seminaries. I think it was Steve Lawson who said about 40 years was the mark for all of those schools in America. Start, train up pastors according to good theology, and then 40 years, 50 years later. So what is that, a generation or two? All right, let's go to the second Great Awakening. So we saw the first. The first was before America became a country, before 1776. It's mostly focused on the Wesleys coming to America. There's also... Some things happening in England, although I don't think they call it the, the first great awakening in England. But definitely that was a great time of revival in America. Revival happens when a lot of people are in churches. They think they're saved, but they're not. And suddenly somebody starts really preaching the gospel. People get saved. There's a revival of the church. Well, now we move into something called the second great awakening. And this really changes revivals. There's a lot of man-centeredness coming in now in the Second Great Awakening. The first is about preaching the gospel. 
and, and writing good theological works and spreading that information and training up others. The second great awakening is going to be much more familiar to us because it's where a lot of the craziness we see today comes from. It comes from this. I don't think if we dropped into Jonathan Edwards' church or his community and what's happening in the first great awakening, we would feel real at home as far as culture. The second great awakening, we would see some similarities to what we see in churches today, quite a few. So let's talk about factors leading up to it. A lot of what I'm going to quote is from Revival and Revivalism. That's Ian Murray's book, The Making and Marring of American Evangelicalism. 1750, remember that's right around the time of Edward's death, just before he died, all the way up through 1858. So he's covering in that period the Second Great Awakening, and he lists the good and the bad, the good preachers and the bad ones, and what that did to American evangelicalism. So this is definitely a recommended resource. Very readable. Ian Murray is always very readable. I would I would get everything you can get on written by Ian Murray. He has some great biographies on men of church history. So by 1780 and 1790s, there's a need once again for revival because you're you're having the next generation. Edwards is gone, Whitfield is people are not continuing to preach the gospel. And there's a couple of factors that have now come into play. The Revolutionary War, which was a major disruption in social life in America. We often just get the end result picture. But this was a huge disruption. It went on for many years. Farms, lifestyle, economy was disrupted. And also the realities of frontier life in the West, where most settlers did not have easy access to church. So the war is going on. You can't get to church. Or you're on the frontier after the war. And there is no church. Your family is the only church, anything close to the church. And so you have to wait till one is planted or plant one yourself. And so what they would do is start asking preachers to go, especially in the Methodist circles, to make a circuit, to ride from place to place and just do a sermon or a Bible study or a prayer meeting or something. And maybe once or twice a month, you would have this preacher come through. And the best you could do on the other Sundays was to just gather some families and have a little Bible study and prayer. The beginning of the Second Great Awakening was very gradual. It didn't take off like it did with with Whitfield and Edwards. Most historians say by the 1790s, it's starting. And it involved leaders from all these newer denominations, plus some of the older. So you have Presbyterians, you have Methodists and Baptists. The Methodists and Baptists would be newer on the scene, Presbyterians being there a little longer. Presbyterians began to establish new seminaries like Princeton, new Presbyteries in the North. Baptist preachers in the 1700s were likewise charged by the Great Awakening, uh, the First Great Awakening, and so they want to send out preachers. And the thing that early Baptists did, which is probably a weakness, is that they would send out men to preach, but those men weren't trained. And so, okay, you've been in our church for two years, you got the picture. Let me give you a quick training. Now go. And as the 1700s go on, Baptist theology gets weaker and weaker. But there are some some good preachers like Daniel Marshall. You have Samuel Harris, David Thomas, proclaimed an evangelical gospel in the same vein as George Whitfield. During this time, Methodist preachers now are having great success in the colonies, especially the South. The South was all Anglican. That's where Methodism comes from. And so they went to the South with the Methodist meetings outside, and this did really well as far as attracting crowds. Though the preachers of the Great Awakening had been Calvinistic, now the Methodists are very Arminian, 
and they began to repudiate Calvinism as a dangerous error. So up until 1800, most of the nation would have been very familiar with Reformed, at least, at least when it comes to soteriology, the doctrine of how a person is saved and what God is doing and what, what are we doing with faith and, and repentance. That would have sounded very Calvinistic. Most people wouldn't have had an issue with that. Even the Anglicans, who might not practice all of those beliefs, it was in their official doctrinal statement, and it is today, about the sovereignty of God and predestination. But now you're seeing more Arminianism come in. The Methodists are attracting great crowds, and that is going to cause some issues. Here we have a slide showing some numbers here. Part of the initial wave of a revival is seen in the growth of denominations. So 1800 to 1810, the Presbyterians grew from 70 to 100,000. doesn't sound like necessarily a huge growth today, but given the population of America back then, this was huge growth. Baptist membership, 95,000 to 160,000. Methodists, roughly 100,000 new members during the same decade. So tremendous growth happening. A revival in the church has resulted in the founding of numerous evangelical organizations. This is when you have the American Board of Foreign Missions, the American Bible Society, the American Tract Society. Before that, you had to get stuff printed in England and shipped. There were printers in America, but not a whole society and a, and a mission board funding these things like there is in the early 1800s. A revival also came to a number of colleges, including Yale, under the leadership of Timothy Dwight. So the grandson of Jonathan Edwards becomes president there, and he leads Yale for a time into a period of revival. There's gospel preaching once again, and people are getting saved at Yale. Now in the early 1800s, revival goes south to the wilderness of the west there. They came to Kentucky. We don't think of Kentucky as, as west, but back then it was. People were still starting to, to move west from the coast there. And Baptists and Presbyterian evangelists are going through Kentucky even today. If you go there, go through the towns and mountains, there are a lot of Baptist and Presbyterian churches going all the way back to this time period. James McGreedy was one of the first to introduce a camp meeting, a format that would become popular in frontier evangelism. So what that is, is you come out for the week and you have a family camp out, but it's, it's good because it's a church camp out and all the Christians in the whole area from all the towns and villages are invited and there's going to be preaching every day. This comes from the, the Scottish model, which occasionally had a meeting in the open air for communion services. So late 1700s, early 1800s in Scotland, the Presbyterian churches would get together, all the pastors would preach for the week, and people would come out, and then at the end of the week, you would come before your elders, and if you had been in obedience to scripture, living a godly life, you would get a token for communion, and then you would present that token so you could take it at the communion service when you came forward. That was after a week, though, of, of preaching. The Methodists get this idea, and they bring it to, the, to America, especially in the, in the South and the Western parts of the North, and they began having something similar, except it's not organized necessarily by churches, and anybody can come. It's a great evangelistic outside event, great as in lots of people are coming. Problem is to get more people to convert. Some new antics, some new tricks come in. They began initiating altar calls in a system inviting mourners to the front. So this is hard for us to believe, but before this time period, no one did altar calls for 1,800 years in church history. No one ever said, 
But the Apostle Paul did not say, if you want to be saved today, come to the front. Come to the altar. Come, come to the bench. Come sit up here. Come to the steps. No one ever did that before the second great awakening. That is a new invention. It's American invention. And there's a reason they did it, which we'll look at. Uh, there was also this falling that started happening in these Methodist evangelistic meetings. Falling during a service. That showed that you had a genuine spiritual experience. And they were probably thinking back to Edwards's sermons where people would pass out because you were hearing about hell and the fires of hell, how you could die at any moment and go into hell. And these unbelievers, you know, the, the women with their fans and the men are sweating and the heat. And he's preaching about how you're not a believer and you're going to go to hell. People would pass out. And Edwards wrote Religious Affection saying, that's not the, the fruit that tells you they're saved. But it's okay because sometimes you're going to have those emotions when you are saved. Well, the Methodist evangelist said, how can we get people to do these things? And so they emphasize falling. They emphasize altar calls and inviting mourners to come to the front, mourners over their sin. And so there's some early photos of these camp meetings. Big tent revivals, you probably have heard about that today. Sometimes if you're driving through small towns and back roads, you'll still see big tent. Normally they're very charismatic or Pentecostal, but they, they still have big tent revivals in the country. And uh, this goes on from 1800s up till today. There's not quite as many today. So here they are. You, you would wear your Sunday finest every day in the heat of summer in the woods as you were camping. Here's an early photo here in the forest. They would build these, these pews you could sit on. And then usually a little shelter for the preacher or two preachers. And it would just have a, a board running across the front where he could lay his Bible. I don't know what happened when it rained. I guess you were expected to stay there in your pew and the preacher got protected from the rain. Here's a, a drawing or painting. Sometimes it was from a wagon. And uh, again, I, I think, you know, their intentions, intentions were probably good. They were thinking back to Whitfield and the crowds and the people and why can't we do that too? The issue is what they began to emphasize. It was something different. It wasn't you must be born again, but that you must have this sort of experience. You must come forward. You must fall over. You must yell out. You must swoon. You must cry out. And we'll look at some paintings of that happening. So these are all period pieces from that time. So here's some theological issues, though. The Methodist emphasis on human free will began to convince many evangelists that, hey, if it's based on your free will, then I can do something to persuade you to decide to convert. And so they began to do more and more to persuade. If you think today about how people do certain things to pressure, I know that's not as popular as maybe it was 10 or 20 years ago. But that's where it starts here in the Second Great Awakening. Methodists continued to use the camp meeting model even after other denominations found it no longer necessary. So at the beginning, everybody's doing camp meetings. As time goes on, Presbyterians and, and Baptists have more issues with that. They see problems going on, so they stop that and go back to the traditional church model, whereas the Methodists continue with the camp meeting model. This revivalism of the Methodist camp meetings would be taken to a new level several years later, under the ministry of Charles G. Finney. So Finney sees a great opportunity, and he is going to make use of it here. Anybody heard of Charles Finney? Just a few of you. 
Anybody like Charles Finney? Don't raise your hand. Prior to Finney, the ministries of several New England pastors, and so here's some good preachers. They're, they have their sermons and books in print, if you can find them. Some, some might be out of print, but still published at some point. Edward Dorr Griffin, Asahel Nettleton. He was a Methodist. Lyman Beecher. I think that was the, was that the father or grandfather of Harriet Beecher Stowe. Edward Payson and Gardner Spring. I've got some books in my library from Gardner Spring. I've got a biography by, I think it was Ian Murray, who wrote on Nettleton as well, even though he was uh, a Methodist. And, and Murray has a, a biography on John Wesley as well. Uh, these men, unlike Finney, recognize that revival is not something that men can plan. So this is why they had their theology right. It's not something that men can plan or command as they will. The revivals in the Northeast, which occurred over a period of 30 years, followed no pattern or sequence. Pastors are just preaching the gospel and people are coming to saving faith. And hey, let's go in the field and let's get together a few churches and preach the gospel all day or all week. They're not trying to force you to change your mind or convert or come forward or fall over. They're really just doing a, a little bit maybe more passionate preaching because of what's going on in the culture at the time, but they're going back to the Word. They're going back to preaching. And that includes Asahel Nettleton, who was a Methodist. He was a circuit writer Methodist, which I think there are some problems with circuit writing. Is, is you're not really a church necessarily when you're just setting up these groups, but if that's all they had to get started, we can probably understand that. He had issues with what's going to happen with Finney and these camp meetings. So it's not like it's Calvinists against Methodists. It's basically everybody else against Finney and those who continue with this high-pressure sales pitch at the camp meetings. Later, though, Beecher would come to support Finney and what he does. These men, the good ones that we just mentioned, further understood that true evidence of conversion is a changed nature and that the outward signs of conviction may not necessarily constitute a true conversion. So someone might fall over, they might cry, they might be broken, they might come to the altar call, all of this. And then a week later, you see them downtown and they're living the same old party, sinful life that they always have. And so if we're going to stick to the Bible, we don't expect just to see something happen right away. We want to see fruit, like Jesus said, bear good fruit over time. These men emphasized man's sinful inability and rested in the work of God's Spirit to change the sinner's heart. Preach the gospel. God will deal with the sinner in their seat, in their pew, and if they're saved, you can invite them to pray after the church with you. You can open yourself for counsel, but there's nothing in Scripture that tells people they've got to come to the front and have some sort of great experience of emotions. might happen. It might happen that they are in tears. I've seen that many times. Even in our church where people are in tears during a sermon. I don't know if that's because the Lord's working on them or they're just sad for other things in their life. But God's Spirit works on you where you're at. You don't have to do certain things to make that happen. So let's talk about Finney. I've already mentioned him. Finney really is the, the bad, bad fruit of the Second Great Awakening. He basically ruins any good notions of the Second Great Awakening. His name, full name, Charles Grandison Finney. He's ordained in the Presbyterian Church in June 1824. He quickly gains a reputation as an effective evangelist. This man can speak. This man can think. He's trained. And he said, I've got some new measures, some new ideas I'm going to put into practice that's going to, we might say, take it to the next level. It's going to be the Second Great Awakening 2.0, to use modern terminology. 
And he said, we have to do this to get people to convert. And, and the main thing that, that we can think of today is the anxious seat. This is the beginning of the altar call. And what he did was he, he put a, a bench right below these pulpits or the stands. If it was in a church, it would be below the pulpit. If it was out where the shelter was for the preacher, it would be a bench right up near the front. And he would tell people, if you're feeling convicted, if you're feeling the Spirit convict you, you need to come to the front. And there, you know, you're in the spit row. And the preacher, he didn't say spit row, but he can really preach at you. And you'll come under more conviction. You'll get anxious to be converted. You'll have this anxiety. And they called it the anxious bench. It, was, it wasn't called the altar call. It was called the anxious bench. Later, they'll get rid of the bench and just say, come up to the altar in Baptist churches. But there's not an altar. We're not Catholic. We don't have altars, and it's usually just the steps at the front. So he quickly gained a reputation as an effective evangelist. Here's what Ian Murray says. The encouragement of physical responses to preaching, such as falling to the floor, women speaking in worship, meetings carried on through long hours and on successive days, protracted meetings, and above all, inviting individuals to submit to God and prove it by, hum by a humbling action. You need to stand up. You need to kneel down. You need to come forward to the anxious seat. All came straight from the procedures that some Methodists had been popularizing for a quarter of a century. So now he's bringing all this together. He's systematizing it and making it more effective. The anxious seat was the only altar call and the mourner's bench under another name. It was only the altar call that we know today. So there's an actual anxious bench that was in the church for many years. It's even got a little card on there that tells you about it. Here you see in the drawing, we're finished preaching on the stage, and there's the front row of seats, maybe the front two rows. And that would be the people that you could really put the pressure on them to be converted. And Finney believed that the preacher could put enough pressure on them that the listener, by their own desire and free will, would indeed convert themselves. So here it is outdoors. I don't know if this is supposed to be Finney, but this drawing, you can see the bench is turned around and, and you've got a lot of the women up there in the front. They're on their knees. They're falling over. Finney openly denied the sinner's total inability. The Bible teaches we're unable to come to Christ without, without God doing something in our hearts first. He denied that. He taught instead that man has the ability to convert himself. He said, when God commands us to do a thing, it is the highest possible evidence that we can do it. He has no right to command unless we have the power to obey. Do you remember anybody in church history? You have to go back away to the beginning of our class that said almost the exact same thing. I was declared a heretic in early church history. Pelagius. So this is the, the Pelagian controversy brought back to life. I don't know if Finney was reading Pelagius. I don't know how he would have gotten a hold of it, but this is almost exactly what Pelagius said that Augustine started writing against and they had this debate. He's basically he's saying, look, if God tells us to do something in the Bible, then we should be able to do it even without God's help. In other words, we don't need God to act upon our hearts. We can do it ourselves. The problem, the big misunderstanding there is the Bible's written to what? To who? I was written to believers, people who already have the Spirit. Can, the, can a person who's been born again do what it says? 
Yes, not perfect, but you can, right? So it's written to tell us how to live a sanctified life. It's also written to tell us the gospel so we can take it to others. He's assuming, like Pelagius did, that because it's written to believers and gives believers commands, that unbelievers can obey those commands. And they're not able to, the Bible says. They are unable to please God. Unable means there's no ability there to please God in and of ourselves until the Spirit changes us. So here's what he said in a sermon. Make yourselves a new heart. What does the Bible say about a new heart? Who makes the new heart? God does it. It's very clear in the New Covenant promise in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. It's very clear in the New Testament with Jesus and Paul. Here's what Finney said. A man resolves to be a lawyer. Then he directs all of his plans and efforts to that object. And that, for the time, is his governing purpose. He directs all his efforts to that object. And so has changed his heart. So he says, look, coming to faith is like desiring to be a lawyer. You just do it. It is apparent that the change now described, affected by the simple volition, that's your willpower, your decision, of the sinner's mind, through the influence of motives, it's a sufficient change. And that's all the Bible requires. It is all that is necessary to make a sinner a Christian. He's left out the work of God. He's left out the work of the Holy Spirit. He's left out the work of Christ, really. He's just saying, just decide to do it. Just decide to do it. You can do it, just like you want to grow up to be a lawyer. Here's what a better preacher of that day, Gardner Spring, said. He was preaching in New York at the time. He said, men were instructed that all that is necessary in order to become Christians is to resolve to become Christians, and that the purpose and determination to become Christians are themselves the religion of the gospel. You see, the focus is on self, self-determination. It, it's really the, the self-help of today with psychology, with Christian language added to it. Spring says, It was the teaching of some that the renovation of the heart, instead of being the work of the Holy Spirit, is the creature's work, that's man's work, and that the power of the Spirit consists in just persuading the sinner himself to perform it. The principal advocate of these new measures and these Pelagian errors was Reverend Charles G. Finney. So Gardner Spring is a contemporary of Finney, and he recognizes that this is the old Pelagian heresy going way back to the 400s. Here's what Ian Murray says in Revival and Revivalism. So anytime you put an ism on it, that's usually not good, right? So revival's good, revivalism, not good. That's where the title of the book comes from. For Finney, an appeal for public action had become an essential part of evangelism. In other words, and you see some of this today, if you weren't telling people to come to the front and putting pressure on them, you weren't doing evangelism. He believed that all that was needed for conversion was a resolution signified by standing, kneeling, or coming forward. And because the Holy Spirit always acts when a sinner acts, the public resolution could be treated as identical with the miraculous inward change of sudden conversion. In other words, if there is a response in the service, then that's all the proof you need. You're saved. You're saved. Has anybody ever been in a place where they'll say, raise your hand? Right? Every eye, every eye closed, every head bowed, raise your hand if you just prayed that prayer. That dates back to this type. It's not exactly the same, but it goes back to this. The, the idea of putting pressure on people and getting them to do some outward act. Whereas the apostles just preached, and if God is changing the heart, which he, we know he does, the preaching of the word. It's the Bible that's the emphasis. Not your outward action, but the Bible that's the emphasis and proclaiming that. 
Here's more from Murray. It was now claimed as proven, it's proven that the use of the anxious seat and its attendant teaching always saw the multiplication of converts. And the argument went, as such as a result could not be without the working of divine power, God must be setting his seal to the doctrines that were preached and to the means that were used. This is a quote from Finney. What was indisputable was that making conversion a matter of instant public decision with ascertainable numbers immediately announced in the religious press produced a display of repeated successes on a scale never before witnessed. Numbers seen to be responding were claimed as more than sufficient evidence for the rightness of the changes in practice and teaching. So here's how it works. You can't critique my, if I'm Finney, you can't critique my way of doing things because I have hundreds and thousands of converts. Anybody hear that argument today? You can't challenge me. In fact, sometimes it just goes like this. Don't talk about my theology. How many people have you witnessed to today? You can't, you can't go to the Bible and argue what's right and wrong unless you've gone out and witnessed to more people today than I have. Again, that the type of thinking starts here in the Second Great Awakening. And the numbers, this is the fallacy of numbers. It's actual fallacy in logic. It has some Latin name, but it's if you get enough people to agree with you, you must be right. If you get enough people to agree with you, you must be right. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? Because did more people disagree with Jesus or agree with him while he was on this earth preaching? More turned away from his sermons than believed in him. And he said that's what we are to expect. Now, sometimes you will have a large amount of people be saved at once. That's not to say the Holy Spirit can't work like that. But you can't prove you're right based on the number of people who believe in what you believe or do what you do. The numbers don't prove it. And you'll see even today, even good and, and saved people will say, well, I believe this and I'm right because all these other people agree. Well, what does the Bible say? There's not going to be much talk of the Bible when it comes to this kind of theology. That's my favorite picture of Finney there. He had these piercing blue-gray eyes, and uh, that, that, that even worked more to get you on the front row and, and stare at you. Here's a painting of the time. This is on a, a front of a few history books that cover this period. You've got the preacher up there, and then all these people are just, they're just passing out in the middle and in the front, and they're falling over. Not sure what the guy on the horse is doing on the left, but I don't think they're taking a nap from his long sermon. The idea here is that they're swooning. And you can see the tents there in the background where they would camp. Finney's methods caused major controversy and splits within New England Presbyterianism because he was originally a Presbyterian. And so this is infecting the Presbyterian the churches and all the American churches at the time. Even formerly close friends, Asahel Nettleton, who was a Methodist, and Lyman Beecher, they parted ways over Finney. So Beecher was for him, and Nettleton was against him. In 1838, the Presbyterian Church split into the old school and the new school. The old school said, the way we were doing things is, is the right way. And the new school said, let's adopt some of the measures of Finneyism and some of the new theology. Finney claimed that the success of his new measures could be seen and their numeric results Yet even by his own standard, Finney's manipulative techniques failed. And he's going to admit that later in life. He's going to admit that. But it doesn't matter because at the moment, it's all about the numbers. And today, we would say it's not just the numbers, but also the money, right? It's all about the money, getting the place packed, getting them to tithe, 
20,000 people into a room, entertaining them, manipulating. So the reason Finney's new measures were so widely accepted was due to four things. This is what Murray says. Their visible numeric success, there, there is this thing that happens in the world. When you drive by a restaurant and you see no cars there, what do you do? You just keep going because either it's bad and everybody gets sick and doesn't go back there or it's closed or it's just bad, right? We've done that many times. The parking lot's packed. What do you think? That's the best place to eat in town. I can't even get in. There's a line out the door. I'm not waiting, but that's the place to be. Well, it happens that way in churches sometimes as well, and it did in these camp meetings. Secondly, Christians wanted to see a visible success. You know, we're spending this money to do this thing, sending out missionaries. This is how it works today. We're sending out missionaries. We want to see numbers. Missionaries come back from overseas, and they start reporting all these numbers and may or may not be real conversions. So it was new, and it was exciting. Thirdly, new measures were introduced in a time of true revival. So there is a real revival going on, and then there's this other thing. And so all people have to say is, well, you can't say no one's getting saved. I mean, look at all these people getting saved over in this church and that church. They really got saved. You can't say that. And so that seemed to give credibility to Finney. You can see his blue eyes here in this, in this picture when he was younger. The supposed success of Finney's methods, number four, I'm oh, sorry, number three, the new measures were introduced in a time of true revival. Got that. Four, the supposed success of Finney's methods received much more publicity than the clear harm that was done to the church as a result. So the newspapers are picking this up. And this is big news. You know, Finney had 400 conversions and 100 conversions at this camp meeting. And you got to go out here and there's all these people who were here last week and it's coming back to town next week. And Here's what one of his contemporaries said and, and later said this to theologian B.B. Warfield. During 10 years, hundreds and perhaps thousands were annually reported to be converted on all hands. But now it is admitted that real converts are comparatively few. It is declared even by Finney himself that the great body of them are a disgrace to religion. So they had turned away, gone back to their old sinful lives, and even Finney recognized that as he came through later and met some of those people. Most of Finney's spiritual followers fell into apostasy, so the leaders of that took the helm after him, they went into Socinianism, which denies the Trinity, moralism, or perfect, perfectionism. Evangelical Christianity almost disappeared from Western New York in his own lifetime because that's where he did most of his preaching. Here's what Phil Johnson has a great article on Finney on his website. Despite Finney's accounts of glorious revivals, most of the vast region of New England where he held his revival campaigns fell into a permanent spiritual coldness during Finney's lifetime more than 100 years later still has not emerged from that malaise. This is directly owing to the influence of Finney and others who were simultaneously promoting similar ideas. The western half of New York has become known as the burnt-over district because of the negative effects of the revivalist movement that culminated in Finney's work there. He called it that. Later historians pick up the term. That's the burnt-over district. There's even a Wikipedia article on it today, which is where I stole this map from. And there's the counties today represented. But these are the areas that the revivals were happening in western New York as the frontier moved west. And this is the burnt-over district. You could really say New England in general is the burnt-over district the hardest place to evangelize in America today. All right, last slide. Differences between the first and second Great Awakening. A remarkable difference in time scale. The, the first Great Awakening was three to five years at most. This one lasts several years, 
maybe more than a quarter of a century for sure. The second was a far greater geographical extent because the, the frontier and all of this spreading out of these camp meetings. And so the Methodist historian Abel Stevens believed that at the beginning of the 19th century, religious interest was universal, if not simultaneous, from Maine to Tennessee, from Georgia to Canada. In the 1740s, few congregations outside Presbyterian and congregational bodies were stirred into new life, even though Whitfield, the foremost preacher, was an Anglican. But in this one, everybody's involved, Anglicans, Baptists, Methodists, everybody. Most of them would have been raised in the church, reading their Bibles and being part of a church. Most of the people at these meetings were considered Christians. No, and we still see that today. I think it was better then, the Bible literacy was better then than it is now, because you usually learn to read. And if they didn't have a school in your town, you, at least your parents were teaching you to read from the Bible. I think it's much worse today. All right, other questions, come and see me. Next week, we will move forward, and we're going to start to see, due to this revivalism, there's going to be a lot of heretical cults now starting up because they figured out how to do this as well. Lord, we're so grateful to learn from both the, the good and bad from church history. Let it move us to preach the gospel the right way today, to do it from the scriptures, to always stick to the Bible and what the Bible says. Let us learn from the, the bad theology and, and preachers of the past so we might avoid those errors. Let this motivate us to live holy and godly lives because we've been born again by the Spirit. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior who makes it all possible. Amen.